Russian drone strikes hit several buildings in Kyiv, showing how vulnerable Ukraine's capital remains 10 months into the Russian invasion. It's Wednesday, December 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Senate today takes up the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Federal prosecutors yesterday announced charges against the company's founder. Bankman-Fried and his co-conspirators stole billions of dollars from FTX customers. He used that money for his personal benefit. Also this hour, federal authorities are working to deal with the new influx of migrants on the southern border and the tight market for Christmas trees in the Boston area for both buyers and sellers. I'm going to be in trouble because I'm only doing 400 trees because they, that's all they could give me. Me, I would prefer to have at least uh, maybe five or 600. In sports, the Celtics and Bruins win sunny in the 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Congressional negotiators say they've reached agreement on a framework for a broad spending bill, but they need more time to finish it and avoid a partial federal government shutdown at the end of this week. NPR's Giles Snyder reports that later today, the House will take up a one-week stopgap measure to keep the government funded. The House is expected to pass what's called a continuing resolution, essentially giving Congress until Friday, December 23rd, to pass the larger deal. Details on the agreement for the full fiscal year are still being worked out. Key negotiators have yet to release any top-line numbers. But the deal is expected to include emergency money for Ukraine and potentially an unrelated measure, overhauling the way Congress certifies presidential elections following the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Alabama Republican Senator Richard Shelby says the agreement should enable Congress to finish work on the spending package before the week-long stopgap expires. Giles Snyder, NPR News. The powerful winter storm blasting the central U.S. has triggered blizzard warnings in Nebraska, South Dakota, and Wyoming. Winds will gust above 40 miles per hour, and meteorologist Rich Otto says the region will be blanketed in snow. Areas that are expected to get 6 to 18 inches include the Dakotas, I guess you could say even farther, far eastern Montana and Wyoming into the north and south Dakota region, central northern Minnesota uh, and northern Wisconsin. The same storm system is responsible for deadly weather farther south. Authorities in northern Louisiana say a mother and her small child were killed near Shreveport by a tornado. The National Weather Service says at least six tornadoes touched down in Oklahoma and Texas yesterday. But forecasters say there could have been a dozen. British and French naval boats are conducting a major search and rescue operation in the English Channel. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London a small boat filled with migrants sank overnight in freezing temperatures. Reports began to come in around 3 a.m. local time that a boat had capsized in the Channel. In addition to Navy boats, helicopters and high-speed rescue boats have also been deployed. Marine satellite trackers show them searching an area in the middle of the channel south of Dover and Calais. It's not clear how many people were aboard the boat. According to a BBC reporter on the scene, more than 40 people were rescued and, quote, a small number have died. This comes as England is in the midst of a cold snap. Air temperatures overnight were near freezing in the area, and the water temperature in the channel was about 44 degrees. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Officials in Ukraine say that Russia used drones to attack several sites in the capital, Kyiv, today. Ukrainian military officials say none of the drones hit their intended targets. However, debris rained down on several residential buildings and on two government offices. 
You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's more money available for Boston-area families that need help staying warm this winter. The maximum amount of money a family can receive to help heat their home has been increased from $1,600 to $2,200. Sharon Scott Chandler is the president and CEO of Action for Boston Community Development. She says everyone is feeling the impact of inflation and increased costs. Applications are up statewide 20 to 25 percent. It's a little bit less in the Boston area, but we are still, we're seeing about a thousand more applications than we saw last year. Scott Chandler recommends that even if you don't think you would qualify, you should still apply for assistance if you need help paying for heat. Governor-elect Maura Healey is checking to see if some members of the Baker administration want to stay on when she takes office. Healey's team has been holding meetings. People close to those meetings tell the Boston Globe that some state house workers are open to staying. Others say they already made plans to leave. Healey announced her first three hires yesterday but still has many more roles to fill. The city of Boston is trying to fill vacant storefronts. It's offering grants of up to $200,000 to entrepreneurs and business owners to either open up operations or expand. Aaliyah Forrest with the city's Office of Economic Opportunity and Inclusion says a lot of businesses closed during the pandemic. We've seen a bunch of vacancies in places where office workers were coming to work every day and maybe got their cup of coffee or their lunch. And then the pandemic happened and they're now working from home. The grant money will be paid out over three years and can be used for things like rent and startup costs. Applications are due by the middle of February. Investigators are trying to figure out who killed a Stoughton woman. The Norfolk DA says the body of 40-year-old Amber Buckner was found yesterday in a building behind a Stoughton home. No one has been arrested in connection with her death. Police do not believe the attack was random. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. The Celtics beat the Lakers 122-118 to in overtime last night in Los Angeles. The Bruins taught the Islanders 4-3 to in a shootout at the Garden. Today at the Men's World Cup, it's a semifinal match between Morocco and France. Boston's Moroccan-American community will gather for a watch party at Suffolk Downs this afternoon. Rashid Mukabir is the founder of the community group Moroccan-American Connections in Revere. He's excited the team is in its first-ever semifinal and he's hoping for more. We look forward to be the champion of the world and inspire communities around the world. The winner of today's match will play Argentina in the final on Sunday. In your forecast, it'll be sunny today with a high in the upper 30s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be around 30, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon, lower 40s, rain with some wintry mix on Friday. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 7.08.
WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. Schmitz in Washington, D.C. In Culver City, California, congressional hearings into the failed cryptocurrency giant FTX continue this morning. Yesterday, prosecutors indicted FTX's founder on eight counts of fraud and conspiracy. Sam Bankman-Fried was supposed to testify before a House committee yesterday, but he's in jail in the Bahamas. So the committee's sole witness was John J. Ray III, who has helped restructure many companies, including Enron. And he called FTX one of the biggest business failures he had ever seen. This is really old-fashioned embezzlement. This is just taking money from customers and using it for your own purpose. Not sophisticated at all. Ray also testified FTX used QuickBooks for accounting, a multi-billion dollar company. We're going to talk now to actor and author Ben McKenzie. He's a cryptocurrency skeptic, and he's testifying before that House committee today. So, uh, Ben, what's the biggest thing you want to get across in your testimony today? Sure. Uh, it is for the Senate. Uh, I am trying to convey that cryptocurrencies are not currencies. Uh, I have an economics degree and cryptocurrencies cannot be uh, an effective medium of exchange, unit of account or store of value. So what are they? Well, people put money into them, hoping to make money off of them. Under American law, that's an investment contract, more precisely a security, an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. That's what's called uh, the Howey test. Those are the four prongs of the Howey test. And that's how we determine securities uh, in this country. And so these quote unquote cryptocurrencies need to be classified properly and, and treated as securities with all the applicable laws uh, in place. What raised your suspicions about cryptocurrency? What got you like kind of interested in this? Uh, well, a friend of mine came to me uh, in 2021, this friend had given me the worst financial advice of my life a decade prior <laughs> and basically encouraged me to invest in something that I think ended up being a, a penny stock pump and dump. And uh, in 2021, he came back and he said I should should buy Bitcoin. Um, and I love my friend. He's, he's, a, he's a dear friend, but uh, that raised my suspicions. Um, as soon as I started looking at cryptocurrency, I couldn't understand it. Uh, I am an actor by trade. And, uh, and, and words are the tools of my trade. And cryptocurrencies not being currencies was very confusing to me. Um, the further I went down, none of the words made sense. Uh, decentralized actually meant centralized. Stable coins weren't stable. Uh, I could go on and on, but it was a very strange uh, yeah. experience. And honestly, I just became obsessed with it. And you got an economics uh, degree from Virginia, right? So it's like, if, the, if that didn't make sense to you, it's not gonna make sense to a lot of people. That's right. And I think the majority of the population, you know, the 80 plus percent of Americans who have not purchased crypto, I think that they almost always say the same thing when I ask them what they think about it. They say, I don't know, it seems complicated, but also a little scammy. And I say, no, 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 you got it. <laughs> it's actually not that complicated, but it is scammy. A little scammy. <laughs> should, should the government have done something sooner? Yes. Uh, this was a pretty much a massive regulatory failure, in my opinion. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to throw elbows here, but we really need to look at how crypto exploited the gaps in our regulatory uh, structure. We're the only country in the world that I'm aware of that separates its commodities regulation from its securities regulation, has basically created rival agencies competing over jurisdiction. I think that's one of the issues. 
Uh, I think the fact that these companies are mainly headquartered overseas, you know, FTX is run out of the Bahamas and yet had access to American customers, I think that's problematic. I think there's a number of issues that we need to address. Then you've been critical of the celebrities and influencers who promoted FTX and then made a profit off of those endorsements. Uh, do you think they should be held accountable somehow? I think they should look within their hearts and ask whether they ought to give that money back to the people from whom it was stolen. Can Larry David, though, claim that he, you know, at the end of that commercial, he said, I don't think it's going to work. Can he claim, like, hey, I, did, I, knew, I knew it all the time? <laughs> he can claim whatever he wants. I would ask them just to look inside their hearts and think if they, uh, they've done the right thing or not. That's Ben McKenzie. His book, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud is out next summer. Ben, thanks. Thank you so much. The Biden administration is pushing to remove Iran from the U.N.'s Commission on the Status of Women. The White House says it's in response to the Iranian government's treatment of women, notably Masa Amini, the 22-year-old woman who died in September after she was detained by Iran's so-called morality police. Let's ask Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So what are you hoping to achieve with this vote? Well, certainly what we want to do is send a strong message to the Iranian uh, regime that what they are doing is unacceptable and that they cannot continue to be in a, in a, a structure, in an organization that was created to protect women. And secondly, we want to send a message to the Iranian women who've asked us uh, to do this, that uh, we support them. Iran's ambassador to the U.N. called this an illegal move and accused the U.S. of trying to use the U.N. to advance its political agenda. What's your response to that? Well, the agenda that we have in the U.N. is to protect Uh, people around the world. And in this case, it is to send a message to the women of Iran that the organization created to protect women will not allow a country that is actually killing women to be a part of that organization. Now, Iran is not the only nation on this commission with a poor record on women's rights. Pakistan and Somalia are also on the panel, among others. Why single out Iran? Right now, as we speak, Iranian women are being killed in the street. A young man who protested in support of these women, he's been threatened uh, with uh, execution. And so this is what we're working on Uh, Today, we do know that there are other countries that uh, have issues, and we will continue uh, to push for change in those countries. Uh, Afghanistan, for example, Uh, Afghanistan is not represented by the Taliban on the commission. So Afghanistan is certainly uh, a country that we uh, need to be focused on, and we are focused, laser-focused, in fact, on uh, protecting the women of of, of Afghanistan. Now, some diplomats say they're worried that this is a slippery slope, that the U.S. may use more exclusionary tactics within the U.N. and target others. Is, is that a valid concern? You know, we have heard those complaints. But look, this is the right time to do what we're doing as it relates to Iran. And uh, we have made that very, very clear. 
uh, it's the right thing to do. And I think all of these countries know that this is the right thing to do. And that's my response. Uh, we need to do right by Iranian women. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. For more than a year and a half, inflation has been eating away at our pocketbooks, driving up prices of, well, pretty much everything. The Federal Reserve is expected to announce its latest interest rate hike this afternoon in an effort to pause inflation. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley. Inflation is coming down. Slowly, a report on Tuesday showed inflation dipped from an annual rate of 9% in June to just over 7% in November. But prices are still climbing much faster than Americans were used to in the decades before the pandemic, so the Fed is expected to keep raising interest rates in an effort to tamp down demand and bring prices under control. Rising interest rates make it more expensive to get a car loan or a home mortgage or carry a balance on your credit card. The central bank has already raised its benchmark borrowing rate six times this year, from near zero in March to just under 4 percent now. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says despite that strong dose of monetary medicine, the economy, and especially the job market, have held up well. We're in a place where we really can get inflation under control. Unemployment's at 3.7 percent. I don't regret getting to where we are, and and I think broadly the world will be better off if we can get this over quickly. Today's rate hike is expected to be smaller than the last four, and some forecasters think the Fed will pause altogether after maybe one more rate increase in February. We'll get some clues about that this afternoon when Fed policymakers release their own forecast of where interest rates are headed. Economist Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspective says even if rate hikes slow or stop in the coming months, that doesn't mean the central bank's about to declare victory over inflation or that borrowing will soon get any cheaper don't think that just because we're going to stop raising rates in the near future doesn't mean we're going to be cutting them anytime soon. The money is still going to be more expensive and tighter, um, and that's one of the ways they're going to keep inflation in check. Higher borrowing costs are already being felt in the most sensitive sectors of the economy. Home sales and home construction have declined, and prices for home furnishings are starting to come down as well. Tuesday's inflation report also showed falling prices for used cars, airline tickets, and gasoline. The Fed's biggest concern now is the rising price of services. They're likely to keep climbing so long as wages are rising at a rapid rate. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how COVID influenced our perception of time during the pandemic. It's 720. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. I'm Robin Young. Oh, yay! The annual Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards celebrate the animal kingdom's less majestic moments, like kangaroos at play. The angle of the shot captures one kangaroo looking seemingly like it's out of some action movie, flinging another kangaroo across the sky. Like a kangaroo shot put. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny with a high near 38 today, and it'll be windy. Right now it's 22 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with storage products too, featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and Ugg. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The pandemic did something strange to our sense of time. For some, it made time stand still. Looking at the clock and thinking, oh my God, it's still six hours until the kids are going to go to bed. And for others, it sped up. It moved slow in the beginning and quicker in the end. How did COVID distort our perception of time? NPR's Yuki Noguchi explains as part of our new series, Finding Time, a journey through the fourth dimension to learn what makes us tick. COVID lockdown introduced a grinding tedium to Ruth Ogden's days. It was like climbing a mountain that never ended. She had a newborn and two older boys home from school. The park next to their home in Manchester, England, remained chained shut. In the confines of their three-bedroom duplex, time stagnated. And it was absolute hell. And I kid you not, I could not believe there were 24 hours in the day. It dragged like a massive concrete rock behind me. It was horrendous. But now, with the pandemic receding, Ogden says it feels different. When I look back on it now, it seems like it didn't really happen. Like, I can't really remember anything about it. So in some ways, it seems quite short. Ogden is a psychologist at Liverpool John Moore's University when she isn't a harried mom. Over the pandemic, she surveyed people in different countries about their perception of time. The results show just how variable our sense of time can be. Time is incredibly flexible, and we all experience it in different ways. 
In Iraq, for example, she found people almost universally felt time slowed, but half of UK respondents felt it moved faster. In Argentina, younger, physically active women felt time passed faster than older men. Ogden says it's hard to pinpoint the root of those differences. Living in a war-torn area, under strict lockdown policies, or differing cultural attitudes toward time may be at play. Either way, she says, When life changes, different factors lead to differences in time experience in different cultures. At an individual level, though, the perception of time has a great deal to do with one's emotional state. And of course, the pandemic caused lots of upheaval there. Consider, for example, the experience of Arthur Wade Young III. Wade! I know him as Wade, our super-friendly mail carrier. (laughs) Normally, Young keeps to a schedule. Every weekday around 3.30 p.m., he bounds toward my house with a navy blue satchel slung across his chest. For 12 years, he's walked this route of 530 homes in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Every day, every year, except in 2020. That first year of the pandemic dealt him multiple blows. Surgery on a torn knee ligament kept him sidelined from work. A few months before that, I had to have emergency surgery. I had to get my uh, appendix taken out. He and his wife also separated. He worried constantly for his two school-aged daughters, and that wasn't all. I caught COVID about three times, actually. Comorbidities made his first bout of COVID scary. Okay, so you're only going through a divorce, a couple surgeries, a pandemic. Yes. Uh, now working. Now working. Yes, Some yes, financial yes. troubles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That sounds like a loads of fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> what made it worse, he says, was having too much time to ponder his anguish. Worrying about stuff every day. But I think that kind of slowed things down for me. You know, fear takes control of a lot of things. I asked Ed Miyawaki, a Harvard neurologist, how emotions like fear influence our sense of time. It's complex, he says. There is no one place in the brain that is involved in timekeeping. There is, for example, a place near the optic nerve that tracks time. That makes sense. We use light to sense time of day. And there are dopamine centers where we learn to anticipate rewards and the amygdala, which process memory and emotion. The cerebellum is involved in the timing of movement. There's a clock there. There's an emotional clock. There's a memory clock. All these kinds of clocks. But, Miyawaki says, they aren't synchronized. The brain has no master clock. There's just complex interplay among our senses that act on our sense of time. That's why new experiences like traveling to a foreign land seem to stretch the day out, or why hours seem to vaporize for a kid engrossed in a video game. Miyawaki, who's also a psychiatrist, says sometimes you can even see the differences in someone's internal sense of time. He's treated severely depressed patients who move extremely slowly, almost like sloths, because their emotional state has so altered their timing. The idea that time is one monolithic thing is just wrong. So after decades of research, Miyawaki says he concludes our sense of time comes from something beyond the brain. The question is not just one of science, but also one of psychology, sociology, philosophy. It's a, you know, it has to do with so much more than what dopamine neurons are doing or what amygdala is doing and all the rest. That resonates with Ruth Ogden, the psychology professor in the UK. She says the pandemic alerted many of us to time's relationship to our sense of health and well-being. 
In fact, it seemed to call our attention to time itself. We are aware of time. We're aware of the fragility of time. And we're aware of what happens when your time to do the things you want is taken away from you. And I think that that is the real thing that will have changed is how people value time. That holds true for Arthur Wade Young, my neighborhood mail carrier. He says recent difficult times made him a more spiritual man. I just prayed and that was just about it. Prayer. He became vegan and worked out, transforming his body and his health. He resumed working a year ago and got his rhythm back. Yeah, I, I do feel like they move way quicker now, yeah. Way quicker than they did in the beginning of that pandemic. Like I said, he feels the experience changed him permanently. You know, I just look at things different. It's like I kind of hit rock bottom, but I did. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I was almost there, but I wasn't. But I, I appreciate things more. And he's changed how he spends his time. Make sure I'm doing something worth my time every day. You know, not taking anything for granted. Um, with all the people that were dying, you know, all around the world. Uh, I try to put more time into my kids, try to put more time into reading <laughs> and stuff like that. But yeah. Stuff that makes him savor the moment. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Chinese state media has made a dramatic about-face in its messaging about COVID, raising eyebrows among the Chinese public. It's 729. If you're looking for the perfect holiday gift, tickets to WBUR's City Space winter season are now on sale. You can check out the lineup of new and returning guests and get tickets at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in medical, regulatory, and other groups at vrtx.com. And the Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, a festival of lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th, jartsboston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A U.N. panel is expected to vote today to expel Iran from its women's rights body. The draft resolution was proposed by the U.S. It follows the death of a woman while in custody of Iran's morality police, allegedly for failing to properly wear a headscarf. As Linda Fasulo reports, the woman's death has sparked months of protests in Iran. The U.S. draft resolution calls for the immediate removal of Iran from the U.N. Commission on the Status of Women for the remaining three years of its term. And it denounces Tehran's policies as flagrantly contrary to the human rights of women and girls, including its use of lethal force against peaceful protesters. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield says expelling Iran is, quote, the right thing to do. A large storm system that's dumping snow and ice over a wide area of the western and northern U.S. spawned tornadoes yesterday in parts of Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. In Grapevine, Texas, Trent Kelly with the city's Parks and Recreation Department says there's building damage. It did take the roof off of our service center here in Grapevine, uh, where our Parks Department, Public Works Department operate out of. 
it did uh, through the roof on top of some of the power lines here. A mother and child were killed in Shreveport, Louisiana. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The governor's council is weighing whether to pardon two siblings convicted of abusing children at their family's daycare almost 40 years ago. The council heard six hours of emotional testimony yesterday on Governor Baker's pardon recommendations for Gerald Amaralt and his sister, Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. When Governor Baker recommended the pardons last month, he said he had doubts about the evidence behind the Emeralds' convictions after questions arose that the children may have been manipulated by overzealous investigators. At yesterday's hearing, Barbara Hurley McCarthy, whose daughter was one of the accusers, told the council that her daughter still struggles and the Emeralds should not be pardoned. Many judges who were involved in this case upheld those convictions. The parole board refused to grant them clemency. Do not take away the justice that was dealt 38 years ago. The Emerald's attorney said the case would not hold up today. A council vote is expected by next week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A same-sex couple from Massachusetts that sued the state for the right to marry in 2001 is celebrating a new federal law protecting same-sex marriage. President Biden held a White House ceremony yesterday to sign the Respect for Marriage Act. Heidi and Gina Norton-Smith spoke at that ceremony. Heidi thanked her family and the LGBTQ community for their support throughout the multi-year lawsuit. It takes the efforts of many to bend the arc of history toward justice. Even now, there are so many places where people in our community are under attack. The work will continue, but look at how far we've come. The two were married the day same-sex marriage was legalized in Massachusetts in 2004. The Commonwealth was the first state in the country to do so. A bipartisan group of New Hampshire lawmakers is introducing a bill that would legalize the sale of recreational marijuana in the state. Anyone over 21 would be able to have up to four ounces of cannabis. The proposal would also annul any past marijuana convictions. Taxes from retail sales would be used for substance prevention work and to fund state pensions. It's unclear whether or not Governor Chris Sununu would veto the bill. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. Jake DeBrusque scored twice in regulation and then again in a shootout last night for the Bruins. They beat the New York Islanders 4-3 to at the Garden. The Bees will host the Los Angeles Kings tomorrow. The Celtics beat the Lakers 122-118 to in overtime last night in Los Angeles. The Seas return home from Friday to play the Orlando Magic. Clear skies and windy today with temperatures in the upper 30s, partly overcast tonight, still windy, and in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, overcast, near 40, with a slight chance of afternoon rain. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 6, 7, 35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. 
DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Migrant shelters in El Paso, Texas are overflowing, and, and some people have been released directly into the streets. Federal authorities are scrambling to process thousands of migrants who've crossed the border from Mexico in recent days. All of this is happening as pandemic border restrictions are set to end in less than a week. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration. Joel, tell us some more about what's been happening in El Paso. Sure. Migrants are are waiting across the Rio Grande and and lining up to turn themselves into Border Patrol agents in big numbers, more than 2,000 a day in recent days in El Paso alone. Many are hoping to seek asylum in the U.S. Um, Here's Ruben Garcia, the executive director of Annunciation House, which runs a network of migrant shelters in El Paso, speaking yesterday on the public radio program Texas Standard. We've just seen a huge number of refugees that are crossing the border at this particular time. And of course, it's creating a tremendous challenge. Garcia says both nonprofits and the city of El Paso need more money to deal with this influx of migrants and potentially also need more space to put these migrants uh, on an emergency basis. So Joel, why now in particular? Many of these migrants are fleeing from Nicaragua and Latin America, and some say they are trying to get into the U.S. before border policy changes that they think may be coming soon. It's possible that other migrants are going to wait and see what happens when these pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 end, which is set to happen next week. These restrictions were first put in place under former President Donald Trump. They've allowed immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants without giving them a chance to seek asylum in the U.S. Now a federal judge in Washington, D.C. has ruled that those restrictions are unlawful and given the Biden administration until December 21st to stop using them. So what then might happen next week if Title 42 indeed ends? There's a lot of concern that thousands more migrants will try to cross all at once. The Biden administration is reportedly considering some big changes that would sharply limit who can seek asylum at the border. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was in El Paso yesterday. He was meeting with immigration authorities, along with local political and nonprofit leaders. And he also talked to a few reporters in El Paso, including Angela Cocherga with member station KTEP. We believe in the asylum system. We've worked very, very hard Uh, to reconstruct it after it was dismantled by the prior administration, but also building lawful, safe, orderly, humane pathways. Mayorkas said there are a lot of discussions underway about policy changes, but no final decisions yet. The administration is really trying to find a balance here between allowing migrants to seek asylum protections, especially the most vulnerable, while also discouraging migrants who, who don't have good asylum claims from crossing illegally, and like previous administrations, I think they're, they're finding this can be a very difficult balance to strike. Yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, there's still a legal fight over Title 42. So where does that stand? Yes, there's a legal challenge that's still pending from Republican attorneys general in 19 states, including Arizona and Louisiana. Many of these are the same states, by the way, that successfully blocked Title 42 from ending back in the spring when the Biden administration tried to end these restrictions before. This week, the states filed an emergency motion with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals asking the court to keep Title 42 in place while this legal challenge plays out. The states have asked the court to rule on that request by Friday. If the states don't succeed there, they will likely turn to the Supreme Court next. All right, NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration. Joel, thanks. You're welcome. 
For three years, China followed a tough zero-COVID policy to try to keep the pandemic at bay. But policymakers have pivoted hard in recent days, dropping most testing and quarantine requirements and letting the virus spread largely unchecked. It's an abrupt about-face that few expected so quickly. And as NPR's John Ruich reports, it's got heads spinning. Liang Wanian is one of China's top epidemiologists and an architect of the zero-COVID policy. Two months ago at a press conference, he said COVID, and particularly the Omicron variant, was causing high excess death rates worldwide. If we relax and stop following the dynamic zero COVID policy, it will inevitably lead to mass infection. Mass infection among the elderly and those with chronic conditions could lead to large numbers of people with serious illness and deaths, he said. And that is something we cannot tolerate. Fast forward to this month, and the message has changed. The virulence of the coronavirus has clearly fallen. The rate of severe cases and deaths compared with the original virus and Delta has clearly dropped. The virus is much more mild now. For a lot of people, it feels like whiplash. Everybody you meet is just really perplexed by the whole thing. That's Corinne Hua. She lives in Shanghai, where she runs an NGO. It's just such a strange feeling of going from such strict controls to mayhem. (laughs) That's all I can call it, really. It's absolute chaos. Testing has been scaled way back. Tech-enabled tracking of people's movements has mostly ended, and almost nobody is getting hauled off to quarantine anymore. Different cities and provinces are moving at different paces. Meanwhile, anecdotally, case numbers are soaring. Still, many are happy to be moving on from the restrictions of zero COVID, even if the messaging did a 180 almost overnight. It's no big deal. It's been years, endless, and the policy's been such a pain. That's 66-year-old He Zi, who lives in Beijing. She says some places still require proof of a negative COVID test, but it's been a pain to get one. It was particularly hard for her husband this week. He tested positive, so he went to do another test to confirm. But the line was more than a kilometer long. He tried twice and gave up. When it comes to propaganda signals, Patricia Thornton, a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Oxford, says one key group has been left hanging. Local and municipal level officials in China have been pretty much marinating in some very urgent language about the importance of maintaining zero COVID and stopping transmission in its tracks. Those officials have been getting clear signals from propaganda outlets like the People's Daily newspaper since the pandemic started. Just two months ago, it ran a series of articles insisting that dropping zero COVID was not an option. Now, Thornton says, that messaging has ended and nothing has filled the void. Local-level officials are now absolutely flummoxed. Without someone in Beijing, you know, doing a very open 180 on the propaganda front, there's just no way there's going to be any real clarity at the grassroots. Corinne Hua, the NGO leader, says the lack of new messaging from the very top makes her a bit uneasy. And I feel like someone's hand's been kind of forced to let go a bit, and he doesn't really want to let go. For China's leader, Xi Jinping, the zero-COVID policy has been a source of pride, proof that China could handle the pandemic better than others. The abrupt exit from zero-COVID will put that belief to the test. 
John Ruich, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the local Christmas tree crisis, putting a damper on holiday spirits. And in our next hour, speculation that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has started a stealth campaign for president. In your forecast, upper 30s and windy today under sunny skies. It'll still be windy tonight as it falls to the upper 20s and some clouds move in. Those clouds hang around for an overcast day tomorrow near 40. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. Help Ceres build a just and sustainable future for people and the planet. See the impacts your year-end donation can make at ceres.org slash WBUR. Now in business news, Cambridge-based Wave Life Sciences is getting a $170 million investment from British pharmaceutical giant GSK. Wave will use the money to develop up to nine new therapies aimed at fixing genetic mutations. Wave's stock surged more than 30 percent yesterday when the partnership was announced. There are important deadlines coming up this week for people planning to ship holiday gifts and treats to loved ones outside of New England. WBUR Stevie Chapman explains. If you want your packages to arrive by Christmas or the end of Hanukkah, shipping deadlines are coming quickly. Today is the deadline for ground shipping through FedEx. Ground shipping is one of the least expensive shipping options out there. Tomorrow is the cutoff for UPS. The United States Postal Service gives you until Saturday. If you can't send your packages this week, you can try priority or express shipping options. Those come with deadlines as late as December 23rd, but it costs a lot more and there's no guarantee your gift will arrive on time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. If a natural Christmas tree is part of your holiday tradition and you haven't gotten one yet, you may want to act soon. Stores report fewer trees in stock and some have run out altogether. On top of that, prices have soared. WBUR's Simone Rios visited a tree lot in Boston to find out what's behind the Christmas tree shortage. All right, and young boy took care of you very much. He did, did he take care of you? He's in training, so. Outside yeah, Roxbury Community College in Boston, the air is fresh with the scent of evergreens. Christmas tree seller Danny Kelly wraps up with a customer, Derek Chance. Chance says he drove here from Lynn because he wanted to buy from a black-owned tree lot. I always try to support small business and black-owned businesses. We don't really get the help that we deserve or that we would like, um, so we got to help each other out. Kelly has been selling Christmas trees in the city for decades. 
but he says he couldn't find as many trees as he wanted this season, and that means fewer sales. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble because I, I'm only doing 400 trees because they, that's all they could give me. Me, I would prefer to have at least uh, maybe five or 600. Experts say the Christmas tree shortage has been growing for years. Christmas trees nationwide have been in a tight supply uh, since 2016. And to understand that, you really need to go back to the decade previous, uh, to the economic downturn in, in 2008. That's Jill Sidebottom of the National Christmas Tree Association. She says consumers tightened their spending on everything during the Great Recession, including Christmas decorations. And so tree growers were having a hard time selling their trees. They weren't getting the money for them that they should. Because of that, they weren't investing back and in, in planting a lot of trees. That means there are now fewer fully mature trees to harvest, and it's hitting tree sellers across the country, including in Volante Farms in Needham. Owner Al Volante says he's having a hard time finding enough trees for all his customers. Last year was the first year we actually ran out a couple days before Christmas, which I was shocked at because normally if we run short, we can go find trees. Somebody's always stuck with them. There wasn't a tree to be found in New England last year. Like many merchants, Volante gets his trees mostly from places like Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. But even sellers that grow their own have been running out. David Morin owns Arrowhead Acres Tree Farm in Uxbridge and is a spokesman for the Mass Christmas Tree Association. Out of 115 member farms in Massachusetts, uh, about 20 of them have told me that they've shut down. Shuttered until they get more trees next year. It's not just that farmers planted fewer trees after the Great Recession. Many growers were hurt this year by the lack of rain. In the northeastern corner of Massachusetts this year, the, uh, the drought really hit hard. And uh, I know some farms were not going to open this year because even their mature trees have been heavily damaged. It'll probably take them a year to uh, get back to normal. And even if you do find that perfect tree, you can expect to pay a bit more this holiday season. Like most everything else, the price of trees has been going up. Unfortunately, sellers say the great Christmas tree shortage is likely to last a few more seasons. Their one piece of advice, shop early. And whatever you do, don't wait until Christmas Eve. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is back to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. It's so good to see you. Thank you, Rupa. It is great to be here with you in the middle of the week. Um, we are doing our, our regular Be Well today, which is where we focus on everyone's health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do, we're going to look at alcohol uh, at the holidays. So everything from how to create uh, more welcoming space at holiday parties and that kind of thing for people who don't want to drink or are in recovery, how to think about healthy alcohol consumption, how to think about uh, inclusive and appropriate spaces for people, and just awareness of the role that alcohol plays mm. uh, this time of year when it can be kind of omnipresent. Yeah, and is it just me or is it linked to the darkness? Something about just the time of year seems link to that. I think I think it is. I think it's not just reveling, but also sort of the darkness and the cold. Mm -hmm. So a couple of experts in. I think it'll be really thoughtful. I'm actually looking forward to learning a lot. All right, great. Thank you for doing that. Absolutely. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. 
Right now, it's 7.51. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu team. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Out of Darkness is a historical novel set in 1937 in the oil-rich region of East Texas. A natural gas leak caused an explosion at a school killing nearly 300 students and teachers. Ashley Hope Perez uses this backdrop to tell a fictional story of what was back then considered a forbidden love between an African-American boy and a Mexican-American girl. It's a story about race, power, and class. When it came out in 2015, it received wide recognition in young adult literature. But last year, it started to get pulled from some libraries when a parent at a Texas school board meeting complained about sexually explicit content. Video of that parent's rant went viral and turned into a nightmare for the author. Perez says her book was taken out of context, much like other books that have been targeted by conservative groups. We have seen over and over that the uh, sexual content as a pretext. You know, f- folks know they cannot show up to a school board meeting in 2022 and say, I don't want queer kids in my kids' class. The paperback version of Out of Darkness exposes the racial backgrounds of the central characters. There's a, a black boy and a Mexican-American girl on the front. You hold that book up and say, um, this is disgusting pornographic trash, and you are telegraphing a powerful message to students who share those identities, right? Perez says book banning as it's unfolding right now is really not about the actual books. Oftentimes, parents calling for book bans haven't even read the material. The books are a tool, she says, that become part of a coordinated strategy for signaling opposition to certain identities. The book banners and in the spaces where they share information and they say, show up, say this, they're very clear. They're, I even have seen a Facebook post that someone shared with me where the poster is explicitly reminding people, don't talk about race or sexual orientation. Remember, you have to focus on the sexual content. Texas has the most book bans of any state, according to PEN America, which advocates for freedom of expression. By PEN America's official count, Perez tells me that her book has been banned 29 times. Out of Darkness, like many works of literature, engages with all kinds of aspects of human experience. And as a literature professor myself, I can tell you that, um, you know, literature from the Bible to Chaucer to Shakespeare um, to Faulkner deals with difficult topics because those aspects of life are um, the material of literature. You know, it's not uh, to be provocative or to distress anyone, but because it's when we want to write about human experience honestly and completely, we have to include the pain of being a person. Uh, and so I think that in many ways, what book banners in the present moment are um, suggesting is that literature that honestly engages human experience is somehow inappropriate for teenagers. 
You became a published author after years of teaching high school English. And you said you wanted to give your students the books they said they wanted to read, but that they couldn't find. Uh, what kind of books did your students feel were missing from their library? Well, anybody who knows a teenager or loves a teenager knows they're a little self-centered. They wanted books about themselves. You know, my first my first novel was basically about my students. You know, it was a the main character was a composite of many of my of my students. And my second novel is also set in Houston, where I taught. Um, with Out of Darkness, I was trying to do something a little bit different, which was to write the historical novel that um, readers like my students wouldn't be able to put down. A historical novel that, though being about the past, would seem powerfully resonant with their lives. And I think that um, in Out of Darkness, for example, I engaged the histories of school segregation in Texas, not just the ways that schools were segregated to separate Black Americans and white American students, but also what happened to Mexican-American kids or anyone who was didn't fit into those categories. So, you know, Texas had, quote-unquote, Mexican schools um, that were unequal in different ways and some in some ways more damaging. And my students didn't know that history. So I thought without a darkness about what my former students would want uh, in a book about the past so that it would speak to them now. And a lot of what they wanted was honesty, not to see things sugar-coated or sanitized. I'm curious, um, after the viral video and, and the controversy over uh, not only your book, but many other books that have been called to be banned, especially in Texas, has this led to more publicity for your book? Has it led to better sales? I, I'm, I'm curious if it's having uh, an effect that the people who are seeking to ban your book uh, would not want, uh, that it's having the reverse effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they're getting the effects that they want because at the end of the day, whether a copy of my book is returned to the library bookshelf, so long as the librarian in a school is positioned to no longer feel confident that they can make decisions about what books to include based on the needs of students, the book banners have won. Because the censorship that is currently coming from outside, the goal is to implant that in the librarians and educators themselves. And it's working extremely well in places like Texas, where this is happening more than anywhere else. There will be people who buy the book because of hearing this interview. But for the hundreds of authors whose works have been banned but who haven't been interviewed on NPR, um, this can be career-ending. I mean, losing access to school and library markets can be career-ending for authors. And the, since these bans are overwhelmingly targeting people, um, you know, authors of color and authors with other marginalized identities, this is a real threat to the modest progress we've made in diversifying children's literature and literature for young adults. That's Ashley Hope Pettis. She's assistant professor of comparative studies at Ohio State University and the author of Out of Darkness and other novels. Ashley, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com slash careers. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Isbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russian drones hit Kyiv this morning, although Ukrainian officials say many were shot down by air defense systems. It's Wednesday, December 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, today marks a decade since the horrific school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. Parents there say not enough has changed. That is one of the saddest pieces of history our country will have to live with, that it didn't end, that Sandy Hook didn't matter enough. Also this hour, emotional testimony as the Massachusetts Governor's Council considers pardons in a decades-old child sex abuse case. And the U.N. warns of starvation in Somalia. We're looking at maybe 1.8 million children suffering from acute malnutrition. About half a million of these are in danger of dying. Celtics and Bruins win. Sunny, windy in the 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is hosting dozens of African leaders at the White House today. It is the second day of the U.S.-Africa Summit. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports one major topic includes several presidential elections that will happen next year in Africa. Countries such as Liberia, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, and Democratic Republic of the Congo will have presidential elections next year. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters this week that the administration wants to do everything it can to support, quote, free, fair and credible elections. Biden will also give remarks at the U.S.-Africa Business Forum in downtown D.C., where leadership from more than 300 companies from the U.S. and Africa will convene. Later in the evening at the White House, African leaders and their spouses will be invited for dinner hosted by the president and the first lady. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Congressional negotiators have indicated they're close to a new spending deal to fund the federal government. Lawmakers need to pass a bill by the end of this week or the government will partially shut down. The House is expected to vote on a short-term spending bill today to help give negotiators more time to finish their work. The powerful storm thrashing the central U.S. has turned deadly in Louisiana. Authorities in Caddo Parish near Shreveport say a tornado has killed a woman and her young son. The Caddo Parish Sheriff Steve Prater says the tornado was so powerful it wiped some homes off their pads. The few houses that are in there, uh, totally destroyed, uh, gone. You just have to look for bits and pieces out in the woods of even the houses. The same storm is responsible for blizzard conditions farther north. Parts of Nebraska, Wyoming, and South Dakota could get about two feet of snow. Policymakers for the Federal Reserve conclude their two-day meeting in Washington today. They're widely expected to increase short-term interest rates by one-half of one percent. That would be less than recent rate increases. The Fed is trying to bring down soaring inflation, 
The Labor Department reported yesterday consumer prices in November were a little more than 7 percent higher than a year ago. The government says long COVID is responsible for more than 3,000 deaths in the U.S. NPR's Rob Stein reports. The National Center for Health Statistics scoured death certificates for any mention of long COVID and found more than 3,500 deaths that doctors specifically blamed on the condition. That includes deaths from heart attacks and strokes that doctors said were caused by chronic complications of COVID-19. However, the researchers and others say the estimate is likely a significant undercount of the true number of deaths from long COVID, which is still poorly understood and defined. And deaths from long COVID are likely to continue to rise as more people continue to get COVID. NPR's Rob Stein reporting. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today, the State Gaming Commission considers approving more companies for an online sports betting license. WinBet won the state's first license yesterday. The Gaming Commission unanimously approved the application. WinBet is tied to Encore Boston Harbor, which received the first in-person sports betting license last week. Regulators expect the first sports bets to be placed next month. Governor Charlie Baker is renewing his call for the White House to enact immigration reform. Baker wants the government to allow people seeking asylum to work during the process. The governor told MassLife yesterday the Biden administration has been unresponsive to the requests. Baker is also asking the state to set aside more money for migrant resources like housing. Lawmakers have not yet acted on the proposal. A nonprofit on the North Shore is trying a new way to reach more people dealing with food insecurity. WBUR's Dan Guzman explains the program is the first of its kind in the area. The group Beverly Bootstraps has installed a bank of 16 refrigerated lockers so those in need can pick up food. It really looks very much like the ones that you would see at any of the retailers that are using it. I've seen something similar in Whole Foods. I've seen something similar in Home Depot. That's Sue Gibson, the group's executive director. She says the lockers are accessible 24-7 and allow people to avoid any stigma they might feel in asking for help. It can be all done online. We don't even ever have to see them for them to sign up and actually start ordering food. Right now, there is one bank of lockers in downtown Beverly. Gibson hopes if that's successful, more will be added in other communities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. Boston's McKinley Special Education School in the South End could get a new name. They could be named for Mel King. The 94-year-old is a longtime Boston politician, educator, and community leader. Cindy Nielsen is the head of school at McKinley. She says while President William McKinley was a historical figure, he isn't relevant for young people today, while Mel King is. Mr. King's legacy in Boston, the work that he's accomplished for many marginalized populations, which um, our school serves, and his talent to bring communities together is the North Star that we were looking for and looking to as we look ahead as a school community. The Boston School Committee will take up the remaining proposal, renaming proposal tonight. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. 
The Celtics lost a lead, staged a comeback, and then rallied in overtime last night in Los Angeles. They beat the Lakers 122-118. to The Seas will be back at the Garden Friday to play the Orlando Magic. The Bruins beat the New York Islanders 4-3 to in a shootout last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the L.A. Kings tomorrow. In your forecast, it'll be sunny today with a high in the upper 30s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be around 30. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon, lower 40s. Rain with some wintry mix on Friday. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. In Newtown, Connecticut today, schools will be closed and church bells will ring to mark one decade since 20 first graders and six adults were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. The shooting by a young man with an AR-15-style rifle prompted much conversation about gun laws, mental health, and more. But to many, still not enough action. NPR's Tovia Smith visited with one family bearing the weight of two losses. A warning, this story contains conversations about suicide. At the newly opened memorial near the Sandy Hook School, a young spruce tree symbolizes the many young lives lost there. Around it, a reflection pool is bound by granite stones engraved with the names of all 26 killed. Many of their families came recently to lay wreaths in the perpetually swirling water. Without all these? Nope, that says Jessica. Without all these? Jennifer Hensel and her six-year-old son Owen watched the flowers float by waiting for Aviel's. Nope, that one's Hensel's here with a family that's completely different than it was a decade ago. She's come with Owen and his big sister Imogen, both born after the shooting, but without her daughter Aviel, her spirited, creative six-year-old killed that day, and without her husband Jeremy Richmond, who died by suicide in 2019 after years of grieving. To Hensel, one of the big things about marking 10 years is making it 10 years. I I honestly think that's a quite remarkable accomplishment. I feel like I'm living again where I wasn't for a really long time, and I needed to do that for my children. I love you, my mama. It's a choice Hensel makes every day to hone in amidst her hurt on what she calls the bits of beauty, from savoring the way Imogen's smile (laughs) or Owen's sense of humor is just like their dad's to even tiny things like the perfect foamy white top on her morning coffee. Look at this. Look. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Hensel's dear friend, Francine Wheeler, also lost her six-year-old, Ben, at Sandy Hook. She, too, now savors simple pleasures. But 10 years out, embedded in every joy is still perpetual pain. It's no longer the raw, relentless kind that keeps you from standing up, Hensel says. But the injuries endure, even on this 10th anniversary, a term Wheeler hates. To the rest of the world, it is definitely like, wow. But to me... It's another day, I'm sorry, that we don't get to have our kids. It's another day, and we just keep moving forward the best we can. Every step forward is also a step fraught, like Owen's first day of kindergarten. I don't want to miss the bus. It's Hensel's first time putting both her kids on the bus, as she did with Aviel that day Avi didn't come home. 
And I transitions. Give me a kiss. I love you. I love you, mommy. And goodbyes are hard for all of them. Imogen, take care of your brother today. Okay, okay mom. Hensel just recently started sharing a little more with eight-year-old Imogen about Aviel's death, explaining a man was sick and felt like he needed to hurt as many people as he could. Eventually, Hensel says, the kids will understand the connection between the school shooting and their dad's death and how his grief overtook him. But for now, Hensel keeps it simple, framing it as Jeremy saw things in terms of brain health. I said the sick side of his brain was was very, very sick, and it caused his death. And the first thing she said was, Mom, is your brain going to get sick? And I, I just hugged her and I said, I see my doctor. And I said, I don't think my brain's going to get sick like that. Still, Hensel struggles with how this happened to Jeremy, of all people. As a neuroscientist, he devoted his life after the shooting to a foundation set up in Aviel's memory to research the neurological underpinnings that make people more or less prone to violence. Can we see violence as the disease that it is? It's a disease of the brain. It's he spoke about it around the country, including this stop, just days before he took his life. He was raising awareness about brain health and how to spot signs that someone might be in crisis and what to do. You can, you know, in a time of crisis, reach into a toolbox and find something of value to you that you can then apply in your life. That's the very um, tragic irony of all of this. Because he was so familiar with the signs, Hensel says, Jeremy knew how to cover them up. Even in retrospect, she says, it's hard to connect the dots and to know what was a symptom of grief and exhaustion and what was a sign that he was at risk of suicide. He hid. He hid so much from us. And when it was getting harder and harder and harder for him to hide it, he pushed the people closest to him away. Including Hensel. Jeremy's suicide left her not only robbed of her love and champion, as she put it, but also tortured by the whys and what ifs, just as she was when Aviel died. I was fighting for my life at this point. I was so desperate, so desperate for help. Last year, Hensel started treatments with ketamine, a psychedelic drug used to treat severe depression. It has helped enormously, albeit with a lot of hard work. I'm doing the work. It never stops. And even with how hard this is, how incredibly hard it all is... Hensel pauses and leans back. Sirens still get me. That's what it sounded like the day of the murders. Nonstop. When it happens, Hensel says she gives a prayer to Aviel. I just give thanks for her that I had her for as long as I did. And I always apologize to her that I wasn't there. I always say I wasn't there, baby. I'm sorry. Breaking news from Colorado, a deadly mass shooting at a nightclub. America sees another mass shooting inside a Walmart. The constant barrage of more and more gun violence is no less a body blow 10 years out. Mass shooting in Tulsa. Buffalo Supermarket. An elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. I actually vomited the day I heard about Uvalde. I was, in, I was in bed for a couple days. It's exasperating. Hensel and Wheeler say that their kids' murders didn't become that transformative moment they hoped would finally compel the nation to do more to curb gun violence. That is one of the saddest pieces of history our country will have to live with, that it didn't end, that Sandy Hook didn't matter enough.
Connecticut did pass stricter gun controls within months, but it would take Congress nearly a decade to pass even a modest new federal gun law. And while it didn't go as far as Hensel wanted, when she was invited to the White House to celebrate it this summer, she went. We were like, we wanted the mile, we will take the inch. Standing on the South Lawn next to the Marine Corps band, one of the guys seemed to get it. He said, how do you feel today? <laughs> the perfect question, right? How do you feel today? And I said, I feel good today. And I said, play something joyful for us. But as has been the rhythm of the past decade, such highs and lows quickly swing hard the other way. In September, Hensel was called to testify at the trial of Alex Jones, the InfoWars conspiracy monger whose absurdist lies that the shooting was a hoax tormented families like Hensel's. It would come at us like the floodgates were opening. Hensel told jurors how Jones's followers hid in the bushes around her house taking pictures, hoping to prove that all the grieving parents were just actors and the kids, like her sweet spitfire Aviel, never existed. She was such a big presence. How how do you how do you negate a presence? How do you do that? How do you do that? When Jeremy died, Jones suggested that too was part of a plot. While Jones later acknowledged that the shooting was real, his trial ended in a jury award of nearly a billion dollars for Hensel and eight others. I was in shock. I couldn't stop shaking. Leaving court that day, Hensel said she hoped the verdict would send a message. The idea behind all of this was to stop him. This is not okay to be doing this off of the blood of innocent children who were murdered and their teachers. It's unclear how much money the families will ever collect. But it'd be poetic justice, Hensel says, to invest some of it in the Aviel Initiative's brain research or Ben's Lighthouse, the Wheeler's program geared to kids' emotional well-being. Hensel hopes sharing her story will also help bring change. As Jeremy would often say, people need to face the horror of gun violence instead of always saying, I can't imagine what you're going through. I want people to hear the reality of it. A child was killed. She was brutally blown apart with a large gun. You know, I want people to, to imagine it. As Jen and Jeremy always said, You can imagine. Imagine, imagine, imagine. You have to imagine it. You must, you must, you must. You can't back down. Be brave. We need you here. It's time to do the work. There's going to be a threshold where every one of us is going to be directly affected, and soon. The new Sandy Hook Memorial will now also be a reminder. Oh my God, we just sat there bawling. Like all these little lives who were just lost so tragically. Pam Pietrafeza was one of many visiting the reflection pool one afternoon not far from the newly rebuilt Sandy Hook School. When the kids come out on recess, you can hear the kids. You can hear their little voices. The new Sandy Hook School is still a place Hensel avoids, but 10 years out, she counts triumphs over her trauma, too. She no longer has to detour around the firehouse, where she learned her daughter was one of the 26 murdered. And it's no small feat that this year, both Hensel and Wheeler are preparing to not just endure the holidays, but even embrace them. Yeah, we're actually going to decorate really important Christmas stuff at our house. That's a miracle. 
I like doing that stuff now. Me too. I'm going to pull the tree up today. Nice. Mm -hmm. Under the tree, one of the gifts for Imogen and Owen will be a digital picture frame filled with memories of their dad cooking dinner or making goofy faces. As has been the case every day for a decade, the holiday will bring bits of joy and shards of pain. Two candles that Hensel and the kids will light today for 1214 will stay lit through December 25th. One for Jeremy, who's not been with them for the last three Christmases, and one for Aviel, who's not been there for the past 10. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Newtown, Connecticut. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the debate over the official number of long COVID cases. And in 20 minutes, the U.N. says drought, terror attacks, and high food prices may drive Somalia into full famine by April. It's 819. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says America is in trouble. Social media was supposed to connect us. It was supposed to make it effortless to talk to everybody, anyone. But by 2014, it was clear, no, it's actually fragmenting us into little bubbles, little shards that we can't communicate. And he says that's made America's institutions stupid. Can we reverse course? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny with a high near 38 today, and it'll be windy tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 28 and still very windy. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 40 and a slight chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 23 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez. One of the few places where Republicans did better than expected in this year's midterm elections was Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis won re-election by a wide margin, reinforcing his position as a strong contender for the party's presidential nomination in 2024. Thing is, though, he's not showing signs he's ready to officially announce his candidacy. NPR's Greg Allen reports on his stealth campaign for president. 
DeSantis routinely dismisses questions about his presidential ambitions, saying he's focused on being Florida's governor. But there are some obvious signs that he's preparing to run. He has a candidate-ready autobiography due to be released early next year. He raised more than $200 million for his re-election for governor, has $90 million in the bank, and is still fundraising. He was re-elected after beating his Democratic challenger by nearly 20 points. It's an indication DeSantis says that he knows how to win. We really showed, I think, how it's done in the state of Florida. And if you look at how we performed, no governor Republican has ever gotten a higher percentage of the vote in Florida history. Actually, Florida's first Republican governor, Harrison Reed, was elected by a wider margin during the Reconstruction era. But DeSantis's overwhelming victory sent a strong signal that Florida, once considered the nation's largest swing state, is now firmly in the Republican column. Republican media consultant Giancarlo Sopo says it strengthens his appeal as a national candidate. He knows how to excite Republican voters while also drawing in independents and moderate Democrats into the party. And that is exactly what Republicans should want. We want a big tent party. A lackluster turnout by Democrats was also a major factor in DeSantis's big margin of victory. If DeSantis does decide to run for president while remaining governor, it will likely require a change to Florida law. Florida currently says state office holders must resign their positions if they run for a federal office. But Republican lawmakers, including Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo, say don't worry about the law. They'll repeal it. If an individual who is from Florida, who is a Florida governor, is running for president, I think he should be allowed to do it. As a possible Republican presidential candidate, DeSantis has a strong conservative track record. He tapped into public frustrations with COVID and led the fight against vaccine and mask mandates. He's promoted parental rights and signed into law restrictions on how race, sexual orientation, and gender identity are discussed in the schools. He also approved a law banning abortions after 15 weeks. Those policies have made him a regular on Fox News, boosting his name recognition among Republican voters nationally. Some recent polls show him more popular with Republicans now than Trump. Trump, who's already announced he's running, has noticed. He said it would be a mistake for DeSantis to run and has already tried out an attack line, labeling him Ron DeSanctimonious. DeSantis has largely avoided commenting on the attacks, dismissing them at one news conference as just noise. He rarely mentions the former president now, a far cry from his last election when he ran a campaign ad in which he read Trump's Art of the Deal to his infant son. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. But University of North Florida political scientist Michael Binder says DeSantis is very much interested in Trump's supporters. He wants to be kind of the Trump policy without all of the unhinged commentary and Twitter warfare and personal attacks. Binder expects DeSantis will officially enter the Republican presidential contest anytime soon. As governor, he can largely ignore Trump while talking to donors and traveling to states with early primaries. In how he responds to the former president, University of Florida political scientist Michael McDonald says he sees DeSantis focusing on issues, not personal attacks, taking a page from the guy who beat Trump. It was Joe Biden. It was Sleepy Joe. DeSantis, in some ways, is fashioning himself out of the policy mold of sleepy Joe Biden, somebody who's not throwing firebombs, someone who's just more focused on policy. As a popular governor in the third largest state, DeSantis has a lot going for him, but running for president will put him under a spotlight. And University of North Florida's Michael Binder says there are still a lot of unknowns about DeSantis. He hasn't been great on a debate stage. He isn't a particularly comfortable politicker in a sense of the small group 
hand-to-hand shaking of the hands on the lines. He doesn't thrive in a stadium full of 20,000 people. For DeSantis supporters, there's another caveat. History often hasn't been kind to early presidential frontrunners. Just ask another popular former Republican governor, Scott Walker of Wisconsin. He peaked early before the 2016 election and was knocked out of the race by Donald Trump. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Long COVID has killed more than 3,000 people in the United States. That's according to the federal government's first tally of deaths caused by long-term complications of COVID-19. But as NPR's health correspondent Rob Stein reports, that's probably a significant undercount. COVID-19 has killed more than one million people in the U.S. and left many others suffering from brain fog, fatigue, and other often debilitating long-term health problems. So Farida Ahmad and her colleagues at the National Center for Health Statistics wanted to see how often long COVID itself was being cited as a cause of death. As long COVID is becoming more of an issue in terms of health and illness, we wanted to see if that's something that was manifesting in death, if long COVID was causing deaths. So the researchers scoured death certificates for any mention of long COVID. They found more than 3,500 deaths where doctors specifically cited long COVID. Many were among people with heart disease, lung disease, and other conditions that may have been worsened by long COVID. It can affect more than just the brain fog, but it can affect other organs as well. And the number of deaths blamed on long COVID appears to be increasing. Over time, we're seeing more long COVID deaths increase. And as it's become more recognized and more diagnosed, I think we'll see more of it showing up in medical records and death certificates. Other researchers say the true number of deaths from long COVID is in all likelihood already much higher. This number represents the tip of the iceberg, the floor for the estimate. It's no doubt higher than this. Dr. Harlan Crumhall studies long COVID at Yale. A whole bunch of other people that most doctors don't even know how you would put that in the death certificate right now. They don't even know how to document long COVID on the death certificate. And the toll from long COVID will likely continue to climb as the nation faces yet another surge of infections. Rob Stein, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a look at the Democratic agenda for the lame duck Congress. It includes a spending bill and a final report from the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. It's 829. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're heading out on your commute and while you're at work today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Asking, what's the connection between Hello Kitty and 16th century Dutch furniture? You can solve this and other mysteries at PEM, a place for curious art lovers of all ages. Tickets and more at PEM.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
The handover of a former Libyan intelligence officer to the FBI is causing an uproar in the North African country. The one-time Libyan operative is facing charges in the U.S. for allegedly making the bomb that brought down Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has more from Beirut. Initial reports suggested that the alleged Lockerbie bomb maker, Abu Aguila Mohammed Masoud Kir al-Marimi, was abducted from the Libyan capital Tripoli by a militia and then somehow wound up in U.S. custody. But critics of the authorities in Tripoli accused the government there of cooperating with the United States in his removal. Libya has no extradition treaty with the United States, so the allegation has some politicians saying the Tripoli government violated Libya's sovereignty to curry favour with Washington. Libya is divided between rival governments. The parliament in the east of the country has accused Tripoli of treason and called on Libya's public prosecutor to investigate. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. The bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 killed 270 people, mostly Americans, and included 11 on the ground in Lockerbie. British authorities are reporting at least four deaths after a small boat capsized in the English Channel off the coast of Kent. Helicopters and lifeboats are at the scene. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston City Council is closing out its year today by voting on reparations for black Bostonians. If approved, the plan would create a task force to make proposals for reparations. That group would also document Boston's history in the slave trade and make recommendations accordingly. A New Hampshire man is facing federal charges that he smuggled electronics used in weapons to Russia. Alexei Brayman was arrested in Merrimack yesterday. Five Russian nationals and a New Jersey man were also arrested for their involvement in the alleged scheme. Investigators say the shipments have been happening since at least 2017. If convicted, Brayman could face up to 30 years in prison. Natural Christmas trees are becoming scarce in our area. Some Christmas tree sellers in greater Boston say they're running out of trees. That's due to a drought and not enough seeds planted years ago. WBUR's Simone Rios reports from a tree farm in Needham. Volante Farms in Needham gets its evergreens from Canada, but they worry about having enough supply this year. Terry Volante Boardman and her dad Al Volante run the farm and they say they're seeing a rush of customers. I think people are frantically trying to get everything before things sell out. Um, there's, not, there's no need to panic as of yet. <laughs> but as we get closer to Christmas, certainly you want to make sure you have your tree um, before a couple days before, for sure. A couple days before might be tough to find yeah. a tree. We're normally, we'd, we'd always have trees right to the bitter end. Prices are also up this year, thanks to inflation and undersupply. And even when you can find a lot with trees, there might be fewer choices. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins beat the New York Islanders 4-3 in a shootout last night at the Garden. Boston's Jake DeBrusque scored twice in the first period and again in the shootout. The Bees will host the Los Angeles Kings tomorrow. The Celtics ended their road trip with an overtime win in L.A. They beat the Lakers 122-118 to last night. The Seas return home Friday to play the Orlando Magic. In your forecast, clear skies and windy today with temperatures in the upper 30s. Partly overcast tonight, still windy and in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, overcast near 40 with a slight chance of afternoon rain. It's 23 degrees in Boston at 834. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab. With a variety of financial planning options, from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant, Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow today. More at schwab.com plan. And from Avalara, sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes, designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Learn more at avalara.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. Congress is racing to finish up some big-ticket items in this lame duck session. The January 6th committee is writing its final report ahead of a public hearing next week. But even more pressing, Congress faces a Friday deadline to avoid a possible government shutdown. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now with the latest. Deirdre, Hello. Good morning. So Friday is the deadline for Congress to pass a bill to avoid a possible government shutdown. Are they going to avoid a shutdown? Well, they made some progress on that front last night. Top negotiators announced they have a deal on a framework for a broad spending bill that would fund federal agencies through next fall. But they're going to need more time to finish the detail. This deal would wrap a dozen bills into one massive package. The House is going to pass a short-term bill today that gives negotiators another week. The Senate's expected to take that up before midnight on Friday. This means the new deadline for getting that broader bill together moves to next Friday, December 23rd. Congress always likes to bump right up to the Christmas holidays. Of course. Yep. Uh, the top Senate Republican, Richard Shelby, who negotiated this framework, says if all goes well, they will get it done by then. This spending bill includes things like the Biden administration's request for more money for Ukraine. Right. Are there other bipartisan bills they want to get finished? There is a, one big one. Since that spending bill is really the last train leaving the station this year on Capitol Hill, leaders want to attach a bipartisan bill to it that clarifies how Congress certifies the presidential election results. There's broad bipartisan support for getting that update to the law known as the electoral count done before Republicans take control of the House next year. So we don't have another January 6th. This bill specifies that the vice president's role is strictly ceremonial and it would increase the threshold for raising any objections to a state's electoral votes. Hmm. The January 6th committee has to wrap up by December 31st. Do we have some details uh, on their final public meeting? We do. Chairman Benny Thompson told reporters yesterday the panel's going to have its likely last public meeting on Monday. At that meeting, we're going to learn who the committee believes, according to all this evidence they've compiled, violated any law and should be referred to agencies like the Justice Department for any possible criminal or other charges. Hmm. Thompson wouldn't get into the list of names that they're considering, but at the top of that list is likely former President Donald Trump. Right. We should say, right, that the committee cannot prosecute crime. But we know that the Justice Department is already doing its own broad investigation. So any referrals that the committee makes are more of a symbolic statement. And what about their final report? That's expected to publicly come out on Wednesday. Thompson admits they are still writing it. It's expected to be eight chapters, hundreds, if not thousands of pages. But we could see some preview at the hearing on Monday when the committee is going to formally vote to approve it before its public release on Wednesday. So looking ahead to January, Kevin McCarthy was nominated by House Republicans to serve as speaker. But does he have the votes to be elected by the full House when the new Congress begins? 
Not yet. I mean, Republicans are going to hold just a four-seat majority, so McCarthy can't afford to lose more than four votes. His problem right now is he already has five House Republican hardliners who publicly say they will not support him. So McCarthy is in negotiations with them right now. His supporters say there's no alternative candidate who can win. They admit it could take multiple ballots, multiple votes, but they predict he will eventually be elected Speaker in January. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, thank you. Thanks, Rob. Somalia is facing a major food crisis, and the U.N. warns that parts of the country could experience a full famine by April of next year. The crisis in the East African nation is being driven by a prolonged drought, terror attacks by al-Shabaab, and a spike in global food prices. NPR's Jason Bobian is in the southern Somali city of Baidoa, which is one of the places that the U.N. warns could suffer a famine in 2023. Jason, what is happening uh, in that city that makes these experts predict that there's going to be a famine there in the coming months? Well, for one, the food situation is already really dire here. Baidoa is a city in southwestern Somalia. It's you know surrounded by areas controlled by al-Shabaab militants, and it's become a magnet for people who are fleeing from areas where crops have failed repeatedly over the last two years. Uh, people are showing up destitute, and now you've got hundreds of thousands of them. They're living in these makeshift camps on the edges of the city. Um, they came hoping for international food aid, but many I've talked to here say that that aid is incredibly limited if they're getting it at all. So people are describing begging or gathering sticks to just sell as firewood to survive. You know, and I'm hearing from people that there's nothing even to go back to in their villages. Uh, their crops have failed. Even their goats are dead. I mean, goats that can survive on just about anything. They're dying because there's no vegetation on the lands that they usually graze on. And aid groups are saying that more desperate, hungry people are showing up at these camps every day. How much, um, Jason, are the terror attacks, how much of an impact are they having on the current food crisis? You know, a lot, uh, in, in particular because al-Shabaab is controlling a lot of the rural areas that have been hit the hardest by this drought, and al-Shabaab has banned international food aid, and, and it actually attacks relief agencies as they try to deliver it. Al-Shabaab remains incredibly powerful in this part of Somalia, and they actually control all the roads into Baidoa. So even for aid agencies, they can only get their stuff in here by plane, and it's making things incredibly difficult. And it's got to be also really difficult for these relief groups to operate there, to actually do things. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, in the midst of this dire food crisis in which children are already starving, children are already dying here, getting more food aid in has become just this incredibly complex process. Somalia is already one of the poorest countries in the world. Now they're in the midst of the worst drought they've had in 40 years. And it isn't like, you know, the Somali government simply has stockpiles of grain just sitting around in warehouses in Mogadishu. Any surge in food that's going to come into this country, it has to come in from outside. Yet al-Shabaab is battling against that. At the same time, you've got the war in Ukraine. It's pushed up the cost of grain significantly. Before the war in Ukraine, Somalia got 90% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Now wheat here is harder to get. It's more expensive. Um, This is a situation, you know, that's just getting worse by the day, people say. Is it as bad as the famine in 2011 that killed a quarter of a million people here? No, not yet. But, you know, for a mother whose child is emaciated and starving, that that doesn't really matter. And the U.N. is warning that this crisis is likely to deepen as less food is grown domestically and getting food from abroad becomes increasingly difficult. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Baidoa, Somalia, one of the regions projected to be facing a very severe food crisis in the coming year. Jason, thank you. You're welcome. 
This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, WBUR's Deborah Becker tells us about an emotional hearing yesterday to consider Governor Baker's recommended pardons in a decades-old child sex abuse case. Upper 30s and windy today under sunny skies. It'll still be windy tonight as it falls to the upper 20s and some clouds move in. Those clouds hang around for an overcast day tomorrow near 40. Right now it's 23 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. Now in business news, for the first time since pot shops opened in Massachusetts in 2018, one of them is closing. The Boston Business Journal reports the source in Northampton will shut down. A closing date hasn't been announced. The dispensary has not shared reasons for the closure. Northeastern University is opening a new campus in Miami. The university says it'll begin enrolling students at the Florida campus this fall. This will be the university's 14th campus. It also has locations in London, Toronto, and Portland, Maine. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A decades-old Massachusetts child sex abuse case prompted hours of emotional testimony during a state house hearing yesterday. The governor's counsel took up Governor Charlie Baker's recommended pardons for Gerald Amaralt and his sister Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. The siblings were convicted of abusing children at their family's daycare in Malden during the 1980s. WBR's Deborah Becker was at the hearing and joins us now. Good morning, Deb. Good morning. Okay, so I understand the hearings went on for several hours yesterday. Who all was there and who testified? The room was packed, Rupa. Uh, Gerald Amaralt and Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre were not there at the request of the chair of the governor's council. He said that the Amaralt's presence would have created tension. But supporters of the Amaralt's and supporters of the children they were convicted of abusing were in attendance. The governor's council also heard from the prosecutor who oversaw the Amaralt's trials, some of those who were abused, and their family members. Here's Barbara Hurley McCarthy. She said that her daughter still struggles from being abused as a toddler at the Amaralt's daycare, the Felsacre Day School in Malden. My child and many others involved in this case still can't get past what was done to them. The fears, nightmares, and struggles faced daily due to sexual abuse at the hands of the Amaralt's. Can you tell me when my daughter, myself, or my family will get our pardon? When my daughter will be able to erase what happened to her 38 years ago? Hurley McCarthy was one of five of the affected families who spoke yesterday. And were there people who spoke in support of the Amaralt's and the pardons? Yes, yes. Their their attorney testified. So did Gerald Amaralt's wife, Patty Amaralt. She said she was pregnant with their third child when Amaralt was arrested in 1984. And she also said as someone who worked at the daycare center in the 1980s and who still works with children, she has supported her husband all along during his 18 years in prison and then his time on parole afterward. 
Do you think I would have done that if I thought he hurt a child? My whole life has been working with children. I would have been out of there in a second. I know this didn't happen. And Patty Emerald said her husband and his sister, who are 68 and 64 years old, have served their time. She said Gerald Emerald is still on parole. That is scheduled to end in a year. He also wears an ankle bracelet that monitors his movements. Uh, and Gerald Emerald and his sister are both required to register as sex offenders. Their attorney, James Salton, said these convictions were based on what would now be considered tainted testimony. He called it a textbook example of how not to investigate child sex abuse cases. And what was the reaction from the governor's council? You know, Ruba, I think I would say the counselors appear split. Uh, Counselor Robert Jubinville asked how much punishment was enough. Uh, Counselor Marilyn Petito Devaney says she has a friend whose child was abused in the Fells Acre case, and she said she does not support a pardon. And Counselor Christopher Ionella told Attorney Sultan that this case has been litigated multiple times, including six times before the state Supreme Judicial Court. And a majority of the SJC said, guess what? We're not overturning these convictions. So when you say alleged victims, that's troubling to me, and I'm sure it's troubling to the family here. They're not alleged victims. They are victims. One of the things, Rupa, that the counselors agreed on is that they're concerned that the governor's office did not provide more information about why he recommended these pardons. And the State Board of Pardons did not recommend one and did not hold a hearing on the request. Counselor DiPaolo said, quote, the process stinks. And Prosecutor Hardoon said he approached the governor's office to try to clarify some information, but he said, quote, they were not interested in hearing from me. And did you try and contact the governor's office? Uh, yes, and the governor's office did not respond to requests for comment. The governor had said when he recommended the pardons that he reviewed the legal rulings and he feels that the interviewing techniques used with the children accusers in this case have since been discredited and the evidentiary strength against the Emeralds is in doubt. What happens now? Well, now we get a vote from the governor's council on what to do with these recommended pardons. Chairman Terrence Kennedy said that vote will take place during a regular governor's council meeting. They have one later today. They also have one next Wednesday, and he said there will likely be a vote by that next meeting next week at the latest. WBUR's Deborah Becker, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Robin Young is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Good morning, Robin. Good morning to you. Although, you know, Rupa, we are feeling, you know, very somber today because, as you well know, it's the 10th anniversary of the shooting in Sandy Hook, and we've been reflecting on this a lot in our office because we actually covered that quite a bit, Mm -hmm. and in the early morning, the way it unfolded, it was so unthinkable that this had happened that we actually spoke to a reporter right in front of the school, right there, saying, well, there might have been an administrator shot. We're not sure. I mean, all the press was right at the school. Mm. And, of course, the police came and opened that bathroom door and found those kids. And everyone was suddenly moved out of the parking lot, moved away from the school. And as the day unfolded, it took a long time to 
to hear what had actually happened. And later in the day, you know, we were hearing from people in, in that town just near the school. They called, one called us and said, I, I have children in my driveway. There's children, in my, you know, kids who had run away from the school. I mean, just what a horror. And so we're going to, of course, take a moment to reflect on that. We'll have all the news for you. We're going to be speaking to Senators uh, Gillibrand and Grassley, Republican and Democrat, trying to work out deals on Washington spending. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we'll have all... The news of the day, but this is really a day to reflect, so we're going to do that as well. Yeah, it's crazy that it's been 10 years. Isn't that? Isn't it? Yeah. Thank you, Robin. Uh That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston. Holiday catalogs and book recommendations for every reader. PorterSquareBooks.com. On December 14, 2012, 20 first graders and six educators were shot and killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around the fact that it's been 10 years. I'm older, the people around me are older, and yet my boy is still six. I'm Ari Shapiro. Parents pay tribute to their loved ones this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. With the transistor turning 75 this week, a look at its first pop hit, not on the radio, but the radio itself. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine, where that perfect holiday bottle of Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine can be found. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. I'm David Brancaccio. First, negotiators in Congress say they're close to a deal on a federal budget for the accounting year that began October 1st. But close to a deal doesn't mean a deal. If they don't get something before the clock hits Saturday, it could trigger a partial government shutdown. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. Lawmakers say they have reached a framework for an agreement, but still need to iron out the details of spending bills to fund the government through next September. They expect votes by next week, meaning they'll miss Friday's deadline. To give themselves more time, Congress is expected to pass a short-term measure to keep government funded through next week. What's in the framework agreement? Lawmakers didn't say. But Republicans and Democrats have been at odds over discretionary domestic spending, which is almost everything other than the military and entitlement programs. There's bipartisan agreement to increase military spending to almost $860 billion. For domestic spending, the total could be just under $800 billion. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. In about five hours, we'll get a bulletin saying U.S. central bankers are raising interest rates once again to fight inflation. Expect a half a percentage point jump. There was a hint yesterday the Fed's campaign is working, with inflation in November rising just a tenth of a percent, much less than expected. Prices for goods were generally moderating. Used car prices actually fell. Prices for many services were still going up. Markets, S&P futures are down less than a tenth percent. Dow futures are quite flat. NASDAQ futures are down a tenth of a percent. The 10-year interest rate is up slightly 3.52 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by McDermott, Will & Emery, aligning strategy and advice with clients' objectives to guide them through each step of the private equity life cycle. Learn more about McDermott's private equity practice by visiting mwe.com slash PE. And by Fidelity Investments, introducing Fidelity Income Planning. Build a plan for income that lasts. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. 
The future began 75 years ago this week with the invention of the transistor. We've been looking at the ecosystems of innovation that grew the transistor into the interconnected digital revolution. Well, yesterday it was Bell Telephone Labs in New Jersey, powered by Genius and back then corporate monopoly power. Today, how the transistor had to travel to Dallas to become music to our ears. Time, weather, and... Before there was the first iPod, before the Walkman, there was this handy music player. Hello, hello again. Shaboom, A radio with transistors, not vacuum tubes. The first one was the Regency TR1, and on its launch just before Christmas 1954, was priced at 50 bucks, about $550 in today's money. What was amazing was that people were so transfixed with it that it sold out at that price. They couldn't make enough of them at first. That's Don Pease, son of the co-founder of the Regency Company of Indianapolis. The design looked good enough to eat. Multiple colors, big brassy dial. They didn't sound great, but you could take them to the game or to the beach. Regency made these at the invitation of a Dallas firm, which had just started manufacturing the four transistors inside. Because that would show that Yes, the transistor is a practical device. And how did Texas Instruments, TI, in Dallas get into transistors, patented by Bell Labs in New Jersey four years earlier? Well, they bought a cheap license from Ma Bell, AT&T, for just $300,000 in today's money. And something else, a guy named Gordon Teal, who'd been working on a new kind of transistor, the first ones with silicon. Here's David Laws, a curator at the Computer History Museum in California. Bell didn't pursue that very much because they didn't need the real benefit of silicon, which was the ability to operate over much wider temperature ranges. The first commercial silicon transistor was a great success for TI because now military equipment could begin to use transistors. The company had roots in electronics for oil exploration, but a new TI boss saw this work as too cyclical, says Max Post, a longtime TI employee. There was so much volatility in both the petroleum market up and down on exploration and also military contracts were not very stable in those days. He persuaded the company to let's, let's get into manufacturing. That visionary boss, Pat Haggerty, came to Dallas in 1945 after buying technology for the Pentagon during the war where he'd seen that vacuum tubes had to go he would build a company with the culture to become a mini Bell Labs. They gave you the chance for failure. They'd let you explore ideas, and, and there was no penalty for failure in those days. This culture attracted an engineer in 1958 named Jack Kilby, who had a passion for jamming circuits into smaller spaces for important stuff like hearing aids. A rival firm nearly hired him, but stipulated he could only do the work with part of his time. Instead, T.I.'s boss said Kilby could focus on what he wanted. He said, you, you may work on that full time and see what it comes out of it. At T.I., Kilby then co-invents the integrated circuit, a way to put transistors and other components on a chip without a rat's nest of wires. He wins the Nobel Prize. The pocket calculator is also partly his invention. And that first pocket radio his company promoted as a transistor marketing tool, 150,000 are sold. Not bad, but the platinum mega hit goes to another outfit that bought a transistor license from Bell Labs, Tokyo Tsushin Kogyo, which starts a more familiar brand.
Again, curator David Laws. That was uh, the great success of Sony was to start building transistor radios at very low cost and in high volume. And uh, it eventually swept the market, of course. It's the start of the shift of transistor production overseas, which eventually leads to a big U.S.-Japan trade conflict in the 1980s. Later, most semiconductor fabrication migrates across Asia, something the government is trying to address now with the $280 billion CHIPS Act. But before of all that, the microprocessor, the little brain on a chip with billions of transistors, has to be invented. Now, this happens not at Bell or in Dallas, but in apricot orchards out west. More on that tomorrow here. All of our ecosystems of innovation stories with the transistor turning 75 are accumulating online. I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report from APM. American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's going to be sunny today, but also windy and in the upper 30s. So the city of Revere says the Men's World Cup watch party has been moved indoors. It'll take place at the Beachmont Auditorium instead of Suffolk Downs. There might be quite a crowd. Morocco takes on France in today's semifinal starting at 2, and it's estimated that 10% of Revere's population is of Moroccan descent. Back to the forecast. Tonight it grows a bit cloudy and falls to the upper 20s. It stays cloudy tomorrow and warms up to near 40. It's 24 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says America is in trouble. Social media was supposed to connect us. It was supposed to make it effortless to talk to everybody, anyone. And, but by 2014, it was clear, no, it's actually fragmenting us into little bubbles, little shards that we can't communicate. And he says that's made America's institutions stupid. Can we reverse course? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.